when I ask people, people go, oh, God, was it, you know, Felixstowe, Southampton, Portsmouth, and they never mention the Thames. Um, and it is sort of slightly out of sight, out of mind for our capital city, but actually it's the biggest port in the UK last year. Um, so we do have quite a big job to make sure it sort of features on the radar of decision makers when it comes to, you know, rail or road or whatever investment decisions. Hi, I'm Belden Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist, the podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Robin Mortimer, Chief Executive of the Port of London Authority, the PLA. He'll share with us thoughts about refreshing their enduring organizational purpose to address emerging issues, the impact on CEO time of taking purpose seriously, and the implications of zero carbon on the largest port in the UK. Well, Robin, good morning. Morning. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Maybe we could just start with you saying a little bit about uh, yourself and about the Port of London Authority. Yeah, sure. So uh, I've just completed seven years at the Port of London Authority, I realized last week, uh, which is a bit of a milestone. And uh, before that, I was a director in DEFRA, the government department dealing with environment, food and rural affairs. And I'd had about 20 years in government before joining the PLA. I've done some really interesting things, actually. I was private secretary to a number of cabinet ministers, including John Prescott. My proudest achievement in the civil service was working on the UK's Climate Change Act and taking that through from a concept through to a piece of legislation which is going to be there until 2050, which is you know, a great thing to, to work on. So I joined the PLA in 2014. Port London Authority is the organisation responsible for the tidal Thames from Teddington Lock in West London out into the North Sea. We're the biggest port in the UK. The PLA provides a number of key safety and other services to the port terminals and keeps the river operational as our safety functions, we've got a big environmental responsibility to improve the estuary and conserve the biodiversity and so on. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very varied organisation, but essentially it's kind of like the the local authority for the River Thames, if you want to think about it like that. But maybe without the policing and... um... We don't do actual policing, we do the kind of policing, yeah. And we're more commercial than a local authority, but we do have that authority element too. What would you say is the overall purpose of the PLA? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So in some ways, that's sort of given to us. We're a trust port, a trust that's set up under an Act of Parliament in 1908. And there's some government guidance on what a trust port's for, because I guess, in a sense, we are holding in trust a national asset for the benefit of stakeholders and customers and users. So if you go back to the history for a second, the PLA was set up basically to bring order to what was quite a chaotic Uh, environment in the port in the late 19th century. And there was a royal commission in the 1890s to say that the way the River Thames was organized, the enclosed docks, etc., was not efficient. And there needed to be a single body brought in to oversee all of it. And at that stage, of course, it was the biggest port in the world that the PLA was responsible for. So it was kind of to bring order to that chaos. So in a sense, our purpose kind of stems from that, which is to have a kind of coherent approach to activities on the River Thames. The way the government guidance states it it is that our ultimate goal should be to pass on the port and the river in a better condition to the next generation than we inherited it. 
So that's a kind of great purpose and a sort of guiding principle to improve things, to always try and leave your successor as a better situation than the one you joined. And you say that was given to you, but surely in the you know hundred and however many years it's been since that's evolved and developed. Have you had a look at any of that in your time at the PLA? Yeah, so I guess that kind of broad statement is a great starting point for developing purpose, but but only takes you so far. Nevertheless, it's a nice way of thinking about improvement, I think, the idea of handing something on in a better situation. So beyond that, though, when I joined the PLA, the thing that really struck me was that there was nothing written down which said, what do we actually want the River Thames to be used for? What does improve mean? Improve what? And so what I did was set about developing what we eventually called the Thames Vision, which is a framework for the development of the river in all of its capacities and assets out to 2035. So at that stage, a 20-year framework. The other kind of key thing about the Thames Vision is it relies upon a huge number of other organizations involved in the river to deliver it. It's a vision for the river, not for the organization. And an interaction between the, the vision for the river and the strategy of the organization. If you can, walk me through how you developed it. Who got involved? How did they get involved? Was it easy or difficult? You know, <laughs> some sense of the scale of the challenge would be helpful. Sure. So there's a huge number of stakeholders involved in the rivers. The way we approached it was to think about the existing commercial stakeholders, if you like. So obviously one very important aspect of the, the river is its use commercially. So that includes hosting a huge number of important port terminals into which imports and exports fuel the UK economy, and that's um, containers, bulk goods, oil. So we've got a bunch of terminals uh, on the economic side. Then we've got river operators, i.e. vessel operators, um, including inland water operators who transport goods from terminals into central London. And then there are passenger boat operators. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of stakeholders who are commercially making use of the river in one way or another. And then there, if you like, the, the sort of non-commercial, either public sector or civil society stakeholders who have an interest in the river in other ways. So that includes environmental organizations who are concerned about the Thames biodiversity or the water quality. It includes uh, local authorities. We have 23 what we call riparian boroughs. I, the word riparian wasn't when I was in my vocabulary much before I joined the PLA, but in other words, uh, those along the banks of the river who've got an interest for that local populations. And then I guess the third category are residents. So we do have quite a lot of houseboat dwellers on the River Thames. So those people who actually make the river their home physically and obviously have a particularly kind of close interest in anything to do with uh, the river and its development. So, so there were kind of three broad categories. And what we did is we went about a process where we sat down with the different stakeholders and said, look, you think about the River Thames and how you use it or what you want from it. How do you see that developing over the next 20 years? How can we get the most, if you like, out of that asset? So that might be in terms of more economic activity or improvements to the environment and biodiversity. And I guess the follow-on obvious question is how do we achieve that and how do we measure it? So we had a bunch of kind of workshops with different stakeholders to flesh out the different ways in which we want the river to develop over that 20-year period. One interesting part of that process was us reaching out to stakeholders that the PLA as an organization hadn't really engaged with previously. 
the Ramblers is one that springs to mind, where I don't think there's been any kind of relationship. But actually, if you think about sporting and physical activity and well-being associated with the River Thames, there's far more of that happens on the towpath or the footpath beside the river than actually on the water. So whilst we have very, very close relationships, as you'd expect, with the sports clubs, the rowing clubs, the, the canoeists, the stand-up paddle boarders, etc., not a relationship with those you know, who, who use the river for enjoyment for walking alongside. So that was one example where actually by having a conversation with a new stakeholder, we ended up with something much more interesting to say about the, the Thames for walkers and runners and cyclists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You did that five years ago with the development of the Thames Vision. Where does the story go next? What's the next chapter? Broadly, we've done pretty well in terms of some of the goals we set. So the outcome of the process for developing the vision was we reckoned that we could increase the size of the port. And we've done that very successfully, working very closely in partnership with the Thames terminals. When we wrote the Thames Vision, we were handling about 45 million tonnes of cargo a year. And in 2019, that was up to 54 million tonnes. Obviously, it's come down during the pandemic. But nevertheless, this year, we found out that we were the biggest port in the UK again. So port trade has grown as we set out to achieve. Likewise, inland freight, um, recreational use of the river. So we've actually seen far more events develop over the last five years in terms of rowing clubs and canoes, etc., which is, again, one of our goals, we said. Some other things are sort of much harder to measure longer term. So we are tracking things like water quality and biodiversity. There's data which demonstrates things are going in the right direction, but some of those will be much longer term measures to achieve. One thing that has definitely come up the agenda very significantly is climate change from a maritime perspective. You know, we did think about and we do talk about the role of the river both in adapting to climate change and reducing emissions. It isn't as prominent as I now, with hindsight and sort of five years on, would like. So we're going through a process at the moment of refreshing the vision and climate change will be you know, much more prominent in that process. Is there any read across that you could see to organizations that are kind of in their heart more commercially? This is interesting. And I, I talked to obviously quite a lot of colleagues in both less commercial, I sort of fully public and more commercial for-profit businesses. And I think that that distinction is kind of blurring. The more people I talk to in the for-profit sector, the more they are giving as much attention to stakeholders, sort of public right to do business, if you like, than perhaps they did 10 years ago. And it's a much more part of the conversation now. So I, I would say it's very direct read across that actually if you are a business or an organization that's got public interested in what you do and what you create, then you're going to need to go through some sort of process akin to that in order to get buy-in to your long-term goals and vision. It's more obviously the case if you've got you know, any sort of public accountability in the way we have, but I think the same kind of principles absolutely apply, certainly in the regulated sector, certainly I think you know, water companies or energy companies, but also in the non-regulated sector. I think that's a very good picture of purpose, but what's the strategy bit, particularly because, as you said, you're in this place where you've sort of got a, a vision, a picture of what you're trying to create, and you know a lot of it you can't do on your own. So what's the bit that belongs to you? What's the, the strategy then? We did it fairly sequentially. We first of all set out with our stakeholders, what is the vision for the River Thames, and produced a document which contains a bunch of actions for us and for others to achieve it. We then produced a, um, a new strategy 
which is centered around three broad goals for the organization, which are protect, improve, and promote. So three sort of easy things to remember for people. And the goal was essentially to say, okay, so what of our functions and activities delivers this vision? And we can broadly align all of our goals and activities around those three themes. We do a bunch of stuff around protection, which is essentially safety functions and protecting the environment, which underpins an awful lot of the activity which delivers the vision. Because if we don't have a safe river, um, then obviously we can't grow port trade, we can't grow um, passenger use. So that's a kind of central underpinning feature. Um, improvement includes a, a range of things, including our role as an investor, delivering better services, more efficient, more cost-effective services, again, you know, which delivers across a number of those objectives. And the promotion function is important. We do have a big role working with other bits of government to make sure that the River Thames features, whether it's government investment decisions or local authority housing allocations and planning frameworks, etc. So we have a quite a lot of activity in that advocacy space to make sure the River Thames sort of features. Because there's a funny thing, just as an aside, it's, um, I think that the Thames is um, an unusual sort of port in a sense in the UK, in that if you ask the public, you know, what are the biggest ports in the UK? Um, I don't think there's any sort of scientific survey on this, by the way, but I'm, I'm being totally anecdotal here. But the, when, I, when I ask people, people go, oh, God, was it, you know, Felixstowe, Southampton, Portsmouth? And they never mention the Thames. Um, and it is sort of slightly out of sight, out of mind for our capital city. Uh, but as I said, actually, it's the biggest port in the UK last year. Um, so we do have quite a big job to make sure it sort of features on the radar of decision makers when it comes to, you know, rail or road or whatever investment decisions. Mm-hmm. I think I know the answer, but for our listeners, how did you go about putting that strategy together? We worked through sort of workshops with our senior managers and with the groups from across the organization to connect the day-to-day activities that people do with a kind of broad strategic framework. That's, I guess, for me, the, the real knack of a strategy process is it's got to, at the end of it, mean something to the individuals within the organization. Mm-hmm. What I here is a very, you know, kind of a parallel, inclusive approach. Let's not either the PLA go off and figure out what the vision is and then tell everybody. Let's involve lots of stakeholders. And then internally, let's not just, you know, the exec team or whatever go off. Let's involve our people in those conversations. Yeah, there's a meeting of a kind of top-down process with a bottom-up process. Absolutely needs to be inclusive and involve people either externally or internally in developing thinking. Equally, you kind of need to bring something to the party as the, the leadership of the organization. There are some meetings where it's great to have a blank sheet of paper. There are some where, you know, you need to start by saying we've got a given goal, which is that actually, you know, this needs to be an economically successful port. One of the learnings from the process is that doing it sequentially was understandable given where we were at at the time, but actually I think it would be better to do the two things together. So actually this time, as we're going through the refresh of the vision that I mentioned earlier, we're attempting to do that and actually have the internal and the external conversations much more closely aligned so that we're thinking through the implications for the PLA more clearly as part of the process for developing the goal for the river as opposed to doing the two things that are one after the other. And where are you in that process? I mean, you get sort of getting towards the end of it or, or somewhere in the middle? It's pretty early days. We were planning to start the process early last year, and for obvious reasons, we, you know, we delayed it. Yeah. We were focusing on operational issues only. We're doing a sort of trade forecast study, uh, working with Oxford Economics Consultancy to look at how trade may evolve over the next 
2030. So that, that's, that's started. We're just about to kickstart some internal engagement around the refresh. The aim will be to produce something, consult on it uh, through the rest of this year, and then publish early next. But the trade forecast is, is really key, though, because I think one of the fascinating things to try and work out for all ports at the moment is what are the implications of zero carbon? If you assume, which you know we are and we should, that the UK achieves its goal of reaching net zero by 2050, then that implies a massive reduction in fossil fuels, most of which come into ports. So for the Port of London, around a quarter of our volume at the moment is fossil fuel. And over that period between now and 2050, we have to see a big reduction in that if the UK is going to be successful in achieving net zero. So obviously that has big commercial implications, big practical implications, and would be all downside were it not for the fact there's also a huge opportunity uh, in the ports becoming part of the solution in terms of renewable energy, the hydrogen economy, and the things which you'll need to replace the fossil fuel. So that's one of the sort of big areas of thinking for us at the moment is, you know, how do we make sure that we are at the forefront of that evolution of the whole economy into a net zero economy? Help me understand how the hydrogen economy, as far as the use of the river and the port, replace what you're doing with fuels right now? So there's a couple of ways. One is production and import. So I think there's an assumption that the majority of hydrogen would be produced domestically, but there's also looking at the Committee on Climate Change work, for example, an assumption that there will be some hydrogen potentially imported into the UK. So there is a role that the ports could obviously play. A second is the production of hydrogen. We obviously have a lot of industrial land within the Thames estuary, and that's close to population centres. And therefore, there are various projects and organisations looking at how locations could be used as part of the, the hydrogen economy. And then, of course, there is the, the maritime use of hydrogen as well. So, you know, the long-term decarbonisation of vessels, um, the general working assumption is that that will be in some form reliant upon hydrogen, not yet clear which of the various technological options will kind of champion out, if you like. But that's, again, something which we're looking very closely at with experts in that field. And given the scale of the PLA, which in London is a big thing, but globally kind of not, how do you actually figure out what's the role you want to play in all that? Because it could seem to me very difficult to try and change the whole maritime world. But from what you've said, I doubt you want to just sit there and wait for everybody else to figure it out. We are in the sort of early deployment world. So, so for example, we've just launched a call for bids to something which we're calling the Sustainable Innovation Fund. So this is some investment money which the PLA is sort of putting on the table for bidders into the fund. And we're looking in the first round for a zero carbon berth, possibly a, a mobile berth for cruise ships and other vessels calling into the Port of London. So, you know, that, that would be utilising advanced technology, but not developing the technology in itself, trying to find a solution to deploy that in our context. So I think that's where we see our sort of USP, really, is to help find solutions that are relevant to the Thames and its particular needs and uses, rather than for its Blue Skies research. Right, right. And it also sounds like part of what you're trying to do is mobilise other sources of investment funds. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in that case, you know, there, there may be opportunities, for example, to link up to government funding streams. Um, and we have done that in other cases. There's been funding streams from other central government or mayor of London. And so we can sort of draw on those or indeed work with other partners in some sort of joint venture commercially. So open to all those options. Yeah. Yeah. 
Do you at all worry that you're drifting pretty far away from the, at least the original founding purpose of the organization, or is that not at all on your, your worry list? It's a question that I think, you know, some of our customers can legitimately ask us. All of our revenue is commercial from our customers. We don't get any exchequer money. It's about us making sure that the river remains viable and fit for purpose in the long term. So the reason for investigating low carbon or low air quality impact birthing options is because, you know, that is what the public are increasingly demanding. And if we want this port in a major capital city with a high population to remain you know, publicly acceptable and successful, then we need to find some solutions to that. So I think that's the kind of connection back to our customers and our kind of commercial purpose, if you like. It's a live conversation we have as a board, being clear what our role is and not, you say, drifting too far from our kind of core purpose. Mm -hmm. um, anything looking back over the last five years in, in both developing your purpose, your strategy, linking them together, anything in that that you'd think that was really the way it should have been? I'm really proud of that. Anything you might even point out as you know, a model for others? The way in which we've kind of taken the lead on the environmental agenda has been very striking. I think within the port sector, we are seen as one of the leaders within the UK. And I think that by opening up the space for that through the Thames vision, and that's enabled us to be effective in that. The second, I think, would be that one of the consequences of our vision and strategy work has been to develop an investment plan for the organization and the river. So previously, the PLA had taken quite a conservative approach to investment and hadn't for a number of years made any sort of uh, big investments in land, for example. In 2018, launched an investment plan and have since then acquired a number of strategic land holdings, some of which are already occupied by customers providing services that use the river. So, for example, on Peruvian Wharf, we've got a company there called Breath Aggregate who are bringing marine dredge aggregate into East London uh, for the building trade. Now, that is a strategically really important project for London because it gets a lot of lorries off the road and provides um, economic activity in an area which really needs it, and it utilizes the river. And it wouldn't have happened if we hadn't invested in the land and the infrastructure. So I think that's one of the things that I'm proudest of is that the process of thinking through vision and strategy has then led to some really practical action on the ground. Mm -hmm. And anything looking back on it that you think that really didn't go quite as well as I wanted or, you know, if you could do it over again, you'd do it differently. Some of the goals in the vision were a little bit vague and, uh, you know, you sort of think, how exactly do we improve well-being through use of the river. Nobody's going to disagree with the goal of doing that, but actually how do you do it and how do you measure it? I don't think we gave as much thought to that as we could have done. So I think this time around, I'm going to be really clear that we're going to state a goal, then we ought to be able to evidence how we're going to achieve it and how we're going to measure it. I say that, but there are then always objectives which you kind of think, well, I still want that to be an objective. I'm not sure how we're going to measure it, but you know, that should be the exception rather than the rule, I think. And have you found on any of the ones you mentioned when you started out, you didn't know how to measure it. You're now five years on beginning to get some traction on how to measure it. Well, air quality would be a great example of that. So since publishing the vision, we've now worked with a range of partners to install a whole load of air quality monitoring on the river. So we've got really good developing data because you need you know a number of years to give you a picture. We've got the ability to measure that in a way which we didn't have previously. So yeah, that, that would be the best example of that, I think at least for that one, it wasn't so much 
conceptually trying to figure it out. Some of it was getting practical about it, making the investment to get the kit, to set it up, to all that, you know, really nitty gritty stuff along the way. Exactly. And I think that's why sometimes it's frustrating for some stakeholders that these things do take a long time. And that was a good example where, you know, if you're a resident near a terminal, you know, you want kind of action instantly, understandably. And one of the things we had to say at the start was, well, there is no data to know what the impact of this is. So the first thing we need to do is to install the monitoring equipment and then collect data for, you know, 12, 18, 24 months to be able to build up a picture and only then take evidence-based decisions. So unfortunately, some of these things do take a bit of time to develop, but uh, you wouldn't do that unless you're really clear about your purpose and why you wanted to do it um, and you'd stated your intention to do it. That's got to be the starting point. As the leading through all that, what did you find? What did you learn? How did you change? I think that I, I, I enjoy that sort of process. I like sort of grappling with the big picture and trying to sort of bring some direction and some order. That's something that I enjoy doing. The biggest learning point for me through it has been that you can't do enough of the engagement with people, particularly sort of internally, because it's, it's really quite hard to make that connection for people between the words that end up on the page of the sort of glossy document or the you know, glossy um, web pages and actually kind of my job, well, how does that relate to me? And I think that you know, we didn't do enough of that last time and I think that was a little big learning point for me and I think that will be you know, really good if we can crack that this time. Do you feel as a leader, as a, as a human being, you're any different now than when you started out? I mean, obviously you're a few years older, but beyond that, do you feel like in any way different? You know, I was fairly new um, to this world when we did the process first time around. So there's a sort of a degree of exploration and discovery from my point of view. Um, and there still will be because there's always lots to learn. But it's different, I think, going into a process when you feel you know, more knowledgeable. I hope that as time goes on, you can add a bit more value through that knowledge and experience. And I guess that's for others to judge. But I have a deeper experience and understanding of the people you're dealing with, uh, which has got to be a good thing. And any advice for a CEO who's planning to go down a somewhat similar journey, particularly who's you know, maybe had a strategy that didn't look quite so broad, so inclusively as yours. Any advice? Uh, I think I just, I mean, two things I'd say. One would be go for it. There's no reason to, to hold back. The second would be yeah, make sure you allocate enough time and resources. I mean, it, it's, it's very time consuming for the, you know, for, for me personally, for the board, for the senior team um, to, to, to go to a sort of complete relook or at strategy and vision and so you know you have to expect it's going to take up a fair amount of bandwidth for a 12-month period and you know i think that's it's absolutely worth it but you know be realistic about that that's great robin again thank you for joining it's really very insightful very um, for me inspirational thoughts so thank you very much for joining us thanks very much Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.